Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, this is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Karen Stefano. Karen's the author of What a Body Remembers, a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath, the short story collection, The Secret Games of Words, and the how-to business writing guide, Before Hitting Send. Her work has appeared in Ms. Magazine, California Lawyer, Psychology Today, The Rumpus, and the South Carolina Review, Tampa Review, Epiphany, and elsewhere. She's also an attorney and MBA with more than 20 years of complex litigation experience. And to learn more about Karen and her writing, you can go to her website, stefanokaren.com. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And uh, I appreciated your book uh, in several ways, but one way is that it's uh, a little more on the uh, unusual end for uh, traumatic experiences to be talked about over the course of, of a long time. And kind of the different changes that happen within us, uh, which is, you know, as as the time from my wife's death gets longer and longer, I'm more and more interested in just how those kinds of experiences that that catch our attention in big ways continue to affect us through a lifetime. So uh, I was particularly struck by that in your book. But maybe you could start by telling people... uh, a little bit of of what happened with you and and what you therefore wrote about uh yeah sure so basically it was a summer night in 1984 and i was a 19 year old uc berkeley sophomore and uh my job was patrolling the campus and uh, a pretty crime-ridden city uh, in a police uniform. I was not a cop, uh, but my job was to was to patrol and kind of serve as the eyes and ears of the police department. I wore a police uniform, didn't carry a gun, had a police radio. Uh, I work a shift. I go to the police locker room, change back into my 19-year-old sophomore clothes, and I walk home. And at the threshold of my apartment, a man assaulted me at knife point. And after a just soul-chilling struggle, I did manage to escape. And even though I was left traumatized by this assault and then the subsequent trial of my attacker, uh, I years later, go on to become a criminal defense lawyer, defending men and women accused of crimes as heinous as the one that was committed against me. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting twist. Um, And then fast forward to 2014, 30 years after my assault, and my life once again is crumbling. I'm, I'm stumbling my way through the days. I'm navigating a dying marriage, a devastating financial loss, and an elderly beloved mother who was slipping into dementia at just a disheartening speed. And I became fascinated by my own anxiety and my own PTSD. And I started to ask, well, why does the body remember what the mind works so desperately to forget? Mm -hmm. And these questions prompted uh, a delayed 
it can only be called obsession uh, with my assailant. And I wanted desperately to know whatever became of him and know what's he doing now. And so I began a quest of personal excavation and was determined to track him down. And I did. And what I found out uh, was nothing less than life-altering. I won't give any spoilers, but uh, but that, in in essence, is about what is what the, my story is about. You know, one thing that that really stood out to me. Uh, of course, reading the book brought back similar experiences for me. There are maybe fewer women than we even think of who haven't had any experiences like that. But I had a similar attack on the street. Uh, sto- uh, experience when I was 16 and I similarly to you um, went to his humanity in a way you you started thinking what you thought he was like other than this uh-huh. uh, I started talking that's how I got out of it I just talk 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 you know uh, I still use my my words a lot but <laughs> um you know, it, those those visceral responses we have to trauma. And so then I was sort of, you didn't make a connection between the humanizing you did of him at, at that time. Yeah. You know, maybe he's a scientist, maybe he's an engineer, you know, uh, and then being willing, able, quote, you know, slash able to defend people. Uh, who've who've committed crimes. Do you think there's any connection there? Well, there's there's a connection. There's a, a, a jagged journey uh, to the to the connection. Um, I when I was in college, although I was I was a psychology major as an undergrad, I always had my eyes on becoming a lawyer. And certainly after this experience, I became more focused on becoming a prosecutor. You know, I wanted I wanted justice. I wanted sure. uh, I wanted to put the bad guys away. And uh, everybody I talk to about this book says, hey, you're a victim of a brutal crime, and yet you go on to become a criminal defense attorney? Uh, How do you (laughs) reconcile this? And again, no spoilers, but this is something I do address directly in the book within the full context of all of my life experiences. Uh, and when you read the story, the rationale for this apparent paradox becomes clear. Uh, but it, it's also a large part of what makes my story so interesting. The victim uh, who goes on to become a prosecutor, that's sort of expected. That's the ABC movie of the week story, right? Uh, that's not that interesting. The victim who suffers a brutal assault, who works in law enforcement, who goes on to defend people accused of crimes, who's really good at it, and who sees the humanity, even in those clients who've committed atrocious acts and finds her own voice in doing that work, I, I think that's a journey. A little more unusual. About. Yeah. Although, yeah. although as someone who, you know, I'm a counselor, I mm-hmm. uh, work with grief and trauma a lot and mostly, and in a way it made a, a kind of sense to me in the sense that um, you were in a power position right. as a, as a criminal attorney. You were yeah, not in a victim p- position at all. You were in charge of stuff. Right, <laughs> you know? exactly. You were and in I charge had a, of the outcome. I had a voice. A, I had a yes. voice in the courtroom. When I was a victim on the witness stand who didn't have a clue about this mystery of a criminal justice system, I had no voice as I uh, demonstrate in the scenes of my uh, attacker's trial when I'm on the witness stand. And yeah, I I had a voice then uh, as a criminal defense lawyer. And it, it's it's interesting too, um, uh, 
I was at a reading in Minneapolis this past week, and the woman who hosted the the reading at uh, Open Book Minneapolis, uh, she had had read the book and she had kind of a fresh take on why I became a criminal defense lawyer. She says this was not just a winding twist of unexpected fate. This was you feeling compassion for the marginalized in our criminal justice system, whether those are marginalized victims uh, uh, who are not treated with enough respect or marginalized poor people who are not listened to or treated with respect and yet find themselves in that system. And so uh, that makes so was, sense too. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that when we're trying to figure out our own psychology, it's, it's a very complex kind of thing to do, isn't it? Um, But the other thing, you know, uh, when that happened to me, I I lived at home with my parents. Uh, I was sure that if I told them what happened, uh, I would virtually never be allowed out again. So I didn't tell, I told friends, but I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell the legal system. And in a way, I felt as if I sort of, uh, that might have been the right call given what happens in the legal system. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know what it didn't seem to me that your experience with the legal system helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Understatement of the year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, it was further traumatizing. Absolutely. You know, before we leave on break, we have like four minutes or so left. I want to give people a taste of the book. I feel as if you really captured the origin the. The, the night it happened, the aftermath of the night it happened so beautifully. And I wonder if you'd share uh, that, that section of the book with the listeners. Uh, so that, so the night after the night when of the, the assault, it starts when the cops leave. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, and, and cut me off if we, uh, need to go to break before I finished, but yes, this is chapter nine. It's July 20th, 1984, 2.05 AM. When the cops leave, It's just John and me in a repugnant little apartment, huddled on a scratchy plaid couch. Adrenaline still pumps, filling my body with electricity, currents bouncing through my blood. The rest of the world sleeps, and I'm exhausted, wrung out, but I cannot close my eyes. Nerves jump, my mind races. Suddenly, I hate the sound of silence. I turn to John, my boyfriend, Can we do something? I hear the pleading in my voice. Anything? We pile into John's rusted Audi, a hand-me-down relic of the 1970s bestowed by his older brother. John has a six-pack of Coors, and we drive the dark streets in search of a secluded place where two underage students employed by a police department can drink illegally. We head to the north side of campus, toward the one quiet neighborhood of the city, a stark, blissful contrast to the ugly urban south side where I live. John stops at the Berkeley Rose Garden, a place to get drunk without fear of getting busted and losing our jobs. We climb out of the car, plunge ourselves into shadows, walk deep into a wide, flat lawn. I plot a position in the center of the grass where we'll be safe, where I will have time to react to a potential intruder. A breeze bends thorned branches and blooms sway beside us, colorless in the night. The air chills my arms and face, and I lean into John, needing to feel his weight against me, the solidness of him. I don't stare at the moon as I usually do from this garden. I don't see the sky with its stars. I watch only the corners of the lawn. John's voice, you cold? You're shivering. I look down, see my arms hugging my chest. I have not yet come fully back inside my body. John squeezes me against the warmth of his chest. I want John's arms around me. I'm desperate for their comfort, yet some piece of me rages violently. Some piece wants to scream, don't touch me. 
An embrace is no longer comfort. An embrace is a violation. Too much like that other man's arms wrapped around me, enveloping me in terror. I still feel his touch on my back, neck, shoulders. He's still here with me. What was he thinking? I have no idea. To cut? Rape? Kidnap? The weird thing was he didn't seem crazy. He seemed like a regular guy. I make up stories about him. I imagine him as a man who likes to stay in form, a man who pays attention, who reads the newspaper, gleaning what lessons he can about this world. He knows a lot about science, physics, engineering, but he's not good with words. I imagine him a thoughtful person, a smart person, disciplined and wild at the same time. I think he has a good eye for other people's weaknesses. Like me, he doesn't have many friends. I imagine him now in an interrogation room, bright lights probing. He gets one phone call. Whose number does he dial? Who is the person who answers, who listens, silent on the other end of the line? Who would I call if I were arrested? Where would I fling myself in my desperation? Other than John, who has the qualities to be of any real help? Sitting on the hard, damp ground, I try to feel lucky. My assailant had failed his mission. A predator with more conviction could have kept me quiet and still, could have stuffed me into a van, driven me home to hide me in his basement. Every cell of me is aware of the choices I had made in my brief time with this man, the indecision, how it so easily could have turned out worse. My leaving that hallway with only a bruised lip is nothing but sheer dumb luck, luck that wouldn't always be there, luck that couldn't be counted on. John leans in, presses his lips to my ear, whispers, I'm so glad you're okay. Confusion bubbles beneath my skin as I struggle to steady all the mismatched emotions, to regulate the thoughts darting through my mind of their own will. My fragile sense of safety in the center of the lawn flits away. I search the darkness. Trees at the edge of the grass move. A man hides there. Shh, I tell John. I hear something. John looks at me, follows my eyes. There's nothing there. I sit absolutely still, straining to hear. Adrenaline surges again, eyes focused. Just a shadow. The beer sliding down my throat seems to hold no alcohol at all. I drain the bottle, then another. But I'm jittery, amped, out of control. Fear crackles through me, and I know, am absolutely certain that someone lurks in those bushes, someone who intends us harm. Something moves in the shrubs on the other side of the lawn. I can't take it. I start to stand. Let's go. What? A flash of confusion crosses John's face, or maybe it's irritation. He is not the type to tolerate flightiness. A woman who arrives, then wants to leave. A woman who can't make up her brittle mind. Can we just go? I don't feel safe here. I walk toward the car, leaving John no choice but to follow. Standing at the garden's edge, looking back at the lawn, I see it now for what it is. A scene from a Jamie Lee Curtis flick where the stupid, hapless couple is making out, the boy sweet-talking the girl out of her Calvin Klein's sensuous, innocent bliss until the killer makes himself known, then struggle, a hacking to pieces. I'm vaguely aware I've never thought this way before. From some small, ugly pit inside, I acknowledge I may never think any other way ever again. There's so much to talk about there, and we'll do that as soon as we take our break. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief Grief page at Voice America, and there are links to my novel and Ocean Between Them as well. And to find Karen Stefano and her writing, go to stefanokaren.com. Be back soon. (laughs) 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Karen Stefano, author of What a Body Remembers. And Karen, you read that gripping passage before the break, and what I was thinking about is uh, how many people I've um, counseled over the years who compare their trauma to some other trauma that they imagine would have been worse and and how they're really you can't do that um, that what you lost was a whole worldview a whole way of walking in the world um, that in some sense of safety that you no longer then had right right and you you can't compare uh, you can't compare your trauma to other people's trauma, but you do. And uh, you tell yourself, "I don't, I don't deserve to feel this this way." Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't raped. Uh, it was a knife. It wasn't a gun. You, you know, you tell yourself all these stories to to diminish your own feelings, and uh, it's it's terribly common and. And terribly unhealthy. And I was also very struck by the fact that only a few minutes earlier in your uniform, um, walking the Berkeley campus and, um, you know, keeping things safe for everyone else, uh, you were in a relatively um, safe position you know, most people would like not to mess around with people in uniforms. There are exceptions, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. you, I'm sure you felt sort of powerful in that role. And then to have this happen immediately after taking that uniform off, that must have been a, a unique kind of impact that uh, I was trying to imagine as I read. Yeah, yeah, definitely it, it was unique. And then the, the aftermath was unique, too, because, uh, as you know, in the book, uh, I totally minimized my own trauma, and I lied to myself and everyone around me at, with my mantra, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm okay, it was nothing, I wasn't even hurt, I'm fine. And part of that was from working in a police department uh, where, you know, there's a culture of, you know, be tough, especially if you're a woman, you know, you've got to be tough. And and also just that we could generalize too that uh, because they're so, it's really dicey sharing hard emotional experiences in the culture we live in. and so there's that, too, that just even saying, I'm really upset about this, or I'm very anxious, or, I, you know, all of those kind of statements, uh, there isn't much welcome for generally. You can't depend on a, a compassionate response. Uh, no, absolutely not. And I think that has improved, certainly, since... Uh, uh, the time of my assault back in the back in the eighties. Um, certainly, a podcast like yours didn't exist back then. Uh, it was not 
appropriate to even say, I'm feeling anxious and uh, thank God. And to, to now we can talk about mental illness. We can talk about PTSD. We can share uh, that we're feeling anxious. And so I believe there's been huge improvements uh, culturally, but I, I still I still think we have a ways to go. For sure. Yeah, I'm also thinking about what we're prepared to do with certain events at, at different times in our life. I'm, I'm thinking of a guest I had, uh, Scott Stabile. His parents were murdered when he was 14. Mm. And he told me that... Um, uh, you know, they were, they had, they owned a shop, they were killed in their shop. And he told me that uh, until his 20s, he basically stowed it in a box. He was not, he didn't have the capacity to really deal with it. But on the anniversary each year, he would cry all day. And then it would go back in the box. And it, he finally reached maturity enough to actually face the grief of that. And I, I was reminded of that with, with your book. Um, you know, in a sense, uh, it's, it's pretty hard without a, a very well-informed type of support for a 19-year-old to really grapple with that kind of event. Right. I, th- I think people that age do tend to stow and it comes out later as it did with you. Right, right. And, uh, you know, people have asked me, if you could uh, go back in time, uh, what would you do differently? And I, you know, I, I don't even know. I was, a, I was an incredibly naive 19-year-old. Uh, certainly 19-year-olds uh, exist who are much more worldly than I was, but I was extremely naive and was just trying to kind of push myself and stretch myself working for this police department, for example, trying to belong in this university with 30,000 people. And, uh, and, and I, I look back and say, you know, what, what could I have done differently? Well, as you know, uh, now a uh, 54-year-old woman, I know exactly what I should have done differently. But in the shoes of a 19-year-old young woman, uh, y- you know, I, 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 I just yeah. didn't know what to do. Right. Well, and I mean, the should doesn't even really apply because you were 19, not 54. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. But, but I'm also very aware that you had... A mother who was very anxious from her own life events. Yes. So I could imagine you had kind of, uh, this might be a projection. My mother was a pretty anxious person too. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't want to be the anxious person that your mother is, right? So I don't know. It led in me to a sort of cover up of things that, I was anxious about, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so then the biggest resource a 19-year-old might have, one's parents, in the best of all worlds, <laughs> that is, mm-hmm. I wouldn't imagine they would have been a very easy uh, object of your comfort at that point. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. And uh, that bears out in the story in this, in this book. Uh, I, I didn't tell my mother for a very long time. And, uh, and I don't think my father ever knew. Uh, and that's, it's probably not uncommon uh, in families. Families are not perfect. And uh, at some point in the book, I kind of compare myself to uh, a woman who was uh, kind of famously abducted and found murdered uh, in the in the Berkeley area at close to the time of my own assault and I and this was such a hard thing to 
to admit and felt like such a betrayal writing it. But there was part of me that wished I had different parents, parents that I could trust to swoop in and make it okay and find me a new apartment in another in another part of town that was safer and to shower me with cash so I could go shopping <laughs> for clothes to just, you know, retail therapy. Right. And, um, and, and, that, and who wouldn't make you leave school. Right. And he wouldn't say, and he wouldn't say, this was a bad idea. This place is scary. Come home. Yes. Uh, Come home where it's safe. Uh, So so I guess I have to say that it, that it strikes me that you made the best choice possible in that moment, Uh, but it just didn't mean it would never come up again. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward, you you started uh, developing, and by the way, I've had many other guests who have been harmed by someone uh, who lo- lost track of that person, mm-hmm. have a similar experience to yours where at some point they need to know mm-hmm. about the person. So fast forward to that. Could you read this part of the book that's about... Um, getting more curious to go back and try to try to find him sure absolutely so yes as you say uh this is fast forwarding to 2014 where uh i i as you say i'm becoming curious In 1984, my assailant had no prior record, and since that night in the hallway, I have often speculated I was his first. For reasons I can't really explain, I have also suspected I was his last, that the whole tribulation of arrest, arraignment, hearings, handing his fate to 12 strangers made him lose his taste for hunting women. From the moment I laid eyes on him, I'd seen a graduate student, someone brilliant, studying bioscience or metallurgical engineering, but a person with poor social skills. I picture him still living in the Bay Area, a professor now, an academic milquetoast, pale and soft, his hair thinning further over the years, a creditworthy homeowner, a man who commutes to campus, keeps regular office hours, who drives home at the end of the day to a single glass of wine. I envision a wife, someone smart and quiet and plain. I wonder if he's told her about his arrest, his ordeal, he will call it if he lies to her, his close call if he tells the truth. I wonder if he has children, if these kids think they know their father, what he is capable of. I wonder what books he keeps on his shelf, whether there are any we share. I had seen him a total of five times. The night he attacked me, less than 30 minutes later when I identified him, in the park and shop aisle, at the preliminary hearing, and at the trial. I knew nothing about him, still know nothing. We had spent so little time together, but if I were to list the most significant, mind-altering moments of my life, the minutes spent with him would rank at the top. Because I finally understand that for those few staggering minutes, my body internalized the knowledge that he might be the last person on this earth to ever hold me. I wonder sometimes if he ever thinks about me. It seems impossible that he could have forgotten, but perhaps I didn't matter to him as he mattered to me. Maybe he didn't sense what I sensed, the pure intimacy of it, his hand touching my mouth and nose, the skin on my face, our bodies pressed together, hearts pounding, the shared moments of visceral uncertainty. Mine whether to scream, his whether to run. In my mind, we are bound together forever. He is mine. He is my assailant. So as I had back then, in that other time, that other life, I think about him. A little at first, then a lot, 
then the word for my thoughts becomes obsession, an inability to let go, an inherent need to simply know. If I dig up that other time, face it head on, maybe I can stop the tambourine of panic from shivering up my spine. Maybe I can kill this thing inside me. I was blinded by the trauma of the attack, by my ignorance of the criminal justice system and my own psyche. Now I comprehend that justice system. Now I am finally ready to see. In my journey to become sane, I need to know the truth about this man. But I can't even remember his name anymore. I had clung to it for so long, and then through the years, my mind released it, let it go, choosing to move on, trying to take back my life. Now I want that name back. It's a 30-year-old pre-internet event, but I I'm going to find him. So obviously, when we when we um, unearth the past that way, it is its own thing. But it's very interesting what you had imagined for all those years. <laughs> yeah, don't you think? <laughs> that, yeah, that somehow you made him less lethal in your mind <laughs> than right. than you know this this knife wielding. Um, terribly dangerous person. Uh, I found that fascinating, you know, right. that that um, you kind of cut him down to size a little in your mind, actually. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's come back after the break and, and talk more about um, how this all sorted out for you in the end. Okay. And listeners, while you're uh, while we're on break, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can find Karen Stefano at stefanokaren.com, and we'll be back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Karen Stefano about her book, What a Body Remembers. And Karen, um, during the break, we were talking about that uh, 
the need to grapple with these very profound events that happen in our lives and uh, the fact that often people don't uh, don't say yes to that until they must, uh, yeah. as you were just describing in that passage, that uh, it became something you could not avoid because it was running obsessively in your head. Uh, but I, but I wonder if you could talk a little in this last segment about, uh, you know, then you're in the midst of it, and I imagine that just to write this book uh, sometimes felt re-traumatizing in some way. Uh, could you talk about how you navigated your way through that? And, um, of course, there's the, you know, end result that uh, I think you'd say you're glad you did that, but... I wanted to hear a little more of your story about it on air. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, as we were saying on break, uh, looking back at it, having it, having the book done out in the world, the sensation is, yes, I'm absolutely delighted that I grappled with this, that I tackled this, that I put it down on the page. But in the middle, not so much. And uh, I recently wrote an article for Writer's Digest uh, about this exact topic, about writing about trauma and how it feels to put your trauma on the page. And starting out there's, first of all, I didn't, I thought about this project for two years uh, and was filled with self-doubt for two years before I started writing and researching, thinking, well, this is really interesting to me, but is this interesting to other people? And as I talk to more and more people about what this might be book was about, uh, mostly women, uh, I heard over and over again, yeah, something like that happened to me too. And this was before the hashtag Me Too movement. And so Or at least at least before it was uh as um culturally known at right. it was going on a long time before people heard about it. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. decades, really. <laughs> decades, brewing for decades. Um but and and that uh, bolstered me and let me know that yeah this is a story that need that needs to be told, but I uh, thought that the writing process would be a little bit cathartic, and it wasn't. Oh. <laughs> it, um, it was incredibly triggering, and. Um, uh, and you know my my PTSD and my horrible anxiety just came back full throttle. But the interesting thing was that that was in the first draft, uh, just getting it down on the page. And then as I started to revise and revise and revise, which is how I write, uh, it was almost then like I was writing about somebody else and I, you know I was focusing focusing on the uh, the technical aspects of writing is this scene working uh, is this dialogue uh, compelling are there beats of movement within the dialogue say in the scene where I'm being cross-examined by my assailant's uh, high-priced lawyer and uh and so then the, the anxiety and, and trauma sort of dissipated a little bit. But the interesting thing, thing too, Cheryl, is that it's such a it's such a process because now my book is out in the world. I'm thrilled about that. But I am, you know, I'm promoting it. I am uh, I'm talking to you about it. I'm talking to other people about it. I'm doing readings. And it's very interesting because it, it it's like talking about all of this stuff, this really, really personal stuff uh, is 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 a little bit triggering 
in itself and I'm, and I'm managing it um, because I'm at a point where I finally know, okay, you're you're a little anxious about talking about this, but you're going to be okay. There's like a, there's this newfound sense of self-confidence that like, if I can write about this, I can write about anything. And uh, it's a story that needs to be told. And I think there is something in owning our own story and telling our own story and not needing for it to go away. That is very empowering. Yeah, that's that's uh, a that's a great way of putting it. Uh, not needing it to go away. That's 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 really you know, well put. And uh, obviously, that that is true of me. I mean, every week I'm talking about grief, right? Yeah. Which, which of course, every week I'm thinking about my own losses. Mm-hmm. But I find it very uh, soothing in a way, if that makes sense. Uh, to be it, it sharing, uh, to be sharing those experiences. It's it's my story. It's right. it's what's made my life, and uh, I think you would agree. Just based on what I read in the book, which I won't give away, there there is something after that right. maybe wouldn't have been as possible if you hadn't uh, had the courage to dive in. Right. Right. Uh, right, absolutely. Uh, uh, it's it's hard to do whether you're writing a book or just confronting your grief or trauma in other ways by making yourself vulnerable by sharing yourself with friends or going to see a therapist or engaging in other self care techniques. Uh, it it hurts, but it doesn't hurt as much as what we're all, I think, um, if I can be so bold to speak for every human. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we're all inclined to, to press it down because I think that we as human beings will do anything to avoid pain. Don't you I, think? Uh I'm not going to go that far just because I've been exposed to some other cultures where they handle grief incredibly differently. Mm. Uh, for instance, uh, I I went to a, a weekend with a man from Burkina Faso, uh, which is in Africa. And um, the elders, when he described the way that people do grief here, they said, why would such an intelligent... Uh, society give away their grief like that they make a lot of noise they wail they you know it's it's very it's community held it's not isolated so uh, I don't I I think I would go along with you in terms of western culture though okay right right yeah (laughs) yeah I was just gonna say no that sounds uh that sounds much more healthy but yeah what uh western culture it's the like, way, yeah. yeah. Well, it's we're supposed to be in control all the time, I guess. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Huh? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, what? Just just for these last few minutes, what did what worked best for you personally to support yourself through that? Was it friends? Was it quiet time? I don't know. Everyone has their own. Um, kind of ways to support themselves when they're going when they're grappling with something like that did you have particular ways that helped you um I, I did and I have my own uh rituals of self-care and uh some of them are more healthy than others mm-hmm. uh the the healthy ones are exercise, exercise, uh, either running or yoga. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any drug uh, on, on the planet that can compete with what that does for your mind. I'm not even talking about, uh, caring for your body, uh, but for, for your mental health, uh, talking to a therapist, I have 
the best therapist on the planet. He's in the acknowledgments to my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then you can question how healthy this last one is, but it's allowing myself uh, a lot of downtime or quiet time, as I call it. And, uh, and I think that maybe a little bit less healthy, uh, because it's self, self isolation and, uh, and just kind of giving myself permission to retreat and recharge my batteries. And so I want to put in a word yeah, for the yeah. health of that, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I really do. As long as it's not all you're doing, I think grief likes that. Yeah. I, yeah. I think like if grief likes space and time where not nothing is required. Um, yeah. And yeah. you know, even interacting, which which I also believe is self care, uh, it requires something of you, doesn't it? Oh yeah. To, to be sitting with another person and trying to talk, <laughs> and, you it, know. So um, I'm I'm going to put in a vote for that being on the list. Okay. Okay. That quiet time. Good. And um, so you're you're going to sign off when I start. I'm signing off on that. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> when I start with everything wa- in moderation, right? <laughs> but, but when I start binge watching the Americans again uh, for the fifth time today at five o'clock uh you're you're on board with that (laughs) right exactly (laughs) i i uh interviewed someone who healed from a a tremendous load of grief by watching every season of uh ncis oh wow (laughs) that that everyone has their own way yeah yeah. that's a great note to end on everyone has their own way right thanks so much for being with me today oh my pleasure thank you to find Karen, you can go to StefanoKaren.com to find her and her book. Next week, I'll have Lisa Braver Moss. Her novel, Shrug, comes out of her experiences of childhood domestic violence. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.